Well, with that, if you could go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, we're going to be continuing our series uh, as we are going through the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 11 through 17 this morning. I think I've, I've mentioned this before, but uh, a number of years ago, I got to spend about three weeks in southern Africa uh, visiting a, a ministry partner there and, and seeing what they were doing in, in some different churches there. And um, But so outside of the sort of just, you know, the you know, pastoral reasons for going. One of the things we got to see was just like a ton of African wildlife. Like it was just incredible. It's what you would kind of picture in your mind of what it would be like to be, you know, riding in, in the back of a Jeep uh, through the African wildlife, uh, you know, through the out African outback and just seeing all this stuff. And one day, I just remember, it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen is we saw this pack of cheetahs just like, just, you know, kind of on the side of the road, just, you know, being cheetahs. You know, the same way like you, you would see deer in our area and you'd, you'd it's not, you're not that impressed when you see just deer being deer. Like, it's just, that's how cheetah were there. They're just there in these packs, and they're just doing things. And I remember the, this one pack of cheetahs, so we saw this pack of cheetahs, and you, we just got to stop on the side and just kind of watch them for about an hour or so. And there was this one cheetah in particular who, who just, just struck me, just like, I was just so impressed by the power of this cheetah, right, as it, like, we saw it, like, hit the open field on a hunt, and, like, you just see why it's the fastest, it's the fastest land animal, right? I'm not making that factoid up. I'm going to say it is, and, but, it, you know, it, I mean, it was flying, you know, and the power, and just, you know, the, just, like, as it hunted its prey, and its strength, and its ability, and just its, its power going through, but then that same cheetah, like, I just, I was not just that, 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 that its force in the hunt, but the same cheetah, when it came back, sort of it was, in, it was in charge, or it seemed to be in charge, of like caring for the babies in the pack. And so the same cheetah that like two minutes ago was ferocious and on the prowl and hunting, then started taking care of the babies. And it, you know, it fed one, and it like carried the other in its mouth, and like this other one was sleeping, and you could just tell it was just always like being vi vigilant and just watching over and protecting the pack that was there. And so this same instinct that sort of had a, allowed it to forcefully provide also had the instinct to just peacefully protect and just sort of have this like dual ability and to use its power in sort of these ferocious ways and to use its power in these protective ways. And I was just struck by just watching this cheetah, how it being sort of gentle with the rest of the cheetahs didn't sort of diminish its power, but it sort of magnified the power you saw in the open field. Like, wow, it has, it has the power to do both as we were watching this animal. Which it had the power to do whatever was needed to, to care for the pack that was, that was around it. Well, in Luke chapter 7, where we continue our series this morning, Luke chapter 7, the entire chapter is framed by this central question that takes place at verse 49. So at the end of the chapter, the question that is asked is, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that even forgives sins? And in this in this passage, verses 11 through 17, we get another picture of who this Jesus is. And in our, pa in our passage this morning, we get a glimpse of the power of Jesus, power like no other in all of human history. We get, we get, we get to see what he has power over and what he has power to do. But we get a glimpse of Jesus that it's not just that his power is expansive, but it's how he also tenderly and personally uses his power that really does make him unlike any other. So the main point we're going to look at this morning is, is a very simple one. The main point this, power, this morning is Jesus has power like no other. Jesus has power like no other. And with that, I'm going to ask if you're able, if you could stand as we read verses 11 through 17. If you're new with us this morning, we read, just, we, or we stand as we read God's word just as a way of, of, of honoring and showing our reverence for God's word and that these are the very words of God given to us this morning. 
Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And in, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Well, you may be seated. Again, the main, pow the main idea that we're going to look at is very simply this, that Jesus has power like no other. And we're going to look at this through four points this morning. And point number one is this power like none before. Power like none before. So um, in, in, pro in professional basketball, as you, as you know, I'm, I, I like sort of professional basketball and professional football. And so professional basketball, they have this tradition that when players are inducted into the Hall of Fame, so this is, you know, the very best players of all time, you know, so the best of the best. When, 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 when players are inducted into the Hall of Fame, for the most part, most of the players, they, they, they pick another player from a previous generation, and that player from a previous generation and the player being inducted into the Hall of Fame, they, they wear each other's numbers oftentimes for the ceremony or for some of the, ide for some of the events surrounding the ceremony. And so they wear each other's numbers. And, it, and it's a way of sort of for the, for the guy being inducted, for the guy sort of who's newly being inducted into the Hall of Fame is sort of saying, hey, I, I'm wearing your number because I learned from you. Like you, I modeled my game after you. Like I, you're the player who I looked up to. But it's, also, it's not just a way of acknowledging sort of the previous generation. It's also usually sort of a way for that, for that previous generation, for the older guy to be saying, yeah, like you modeled your game after me, but you took it so much further than I ever did. Like I, I sort of maybe was the first to do this move, but you just, you know, you just did so much better with it than, than I ever did. And so usually it's two guys of the same style, but the previous generation sort of saying, it's sort of this acknowledgement, yeah, yeah, I did it. I, you know, I sort of, I had it here, but you took it to another level sort of this recognition of we've, we've seen this kind of player before, but in the guy now being inducted into the Hall of Fame, we, we see it a little bit better now. Well, in our passage this morning, on the surface, certainly it's a miraculous and a, and a merciful story. But if you were a, a, a first century Jew reading this story and familiar with the Old Testament, or for maybe for many of you reading this story this morning, something that jumps out that should say, wait, haven't, haven't we seen this before? Isn't this the same story that, that, that's, helping, that's happened previously? See, before, before they would have seen this, there, there was a man named Elijah who was, the, who was a prophet, and most of you know that he was considered the greatest of all the prophets, and he performed miracles, he, per, he proclaimed of a coming salvation, and Elijah up to this point would have been, you know, was the most revered man who told of the coming of the Messiah, that there was sort of no one sort of you know, Elijah was sort of on the pedestal of those who came before Christ. And if one was familiar with their Old Testament, one would have one would have would have would have read about this would uh, would have read this miracle, and then imme immediately see, wait, didn't the same thing happen earlier to Elijah? You read this in First Kings chapter seventeen. And after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to, you have come to bring my sin to remembrance and, and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took 
snatched him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, let my, O Lord my God, let this child's life come, come to life again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came again into him, again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in, in your mouth is truth. So you see, what happened with Elijah is, is a widow lost her son and God raised him up from the dead using Elijah. And in fact, the same phrase that, that's used, delivered him to his mother, when, when we see that here in, in 1 Kings, it's the exact words used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the exact words and the exact phrase that Luke used in retelling the story here with Jesus Christ. And Luke is drawing this, he's wanting you to connect these two stories together, that, hey, the same way we saw this in Elijah, he, he's, drawing a very, he's drawing a very clear connection. What happened once to Elijah is this, is this new version happening in Jesus Christ. And, and he's even using the same phraseology. It's meant to strike, oh, exactly what Elijah did is na now Jesus is doing. But we're also not meant to say, okay, this isn't just sort of a repeat of something that happened in Elijah now happening in Christ. We're also meant to say, okay, the same way that he's drawing this parallel to the story to say, okay, what Elijah did, now Jesus is doing, but we're also meant to see this obvious connection of, yeah, but Jesus, Jesus did it better. See, Elijah had, th had to three times stretch himself out upon the child. Jesus simply spoke. Elijah had to pray to God and ask for, God, for this boy to be raised. Jesus simply commanded and the boy was raised. Elijah had to call out to God. Jesus is the one who commanded as God. And the result in the story with Elijah is that this woman saw that you are a man of God. The result of what we see, those who were gathered around seeing this, is they were seized with fear and declared, God has visited his people. See, it's meant to connect this dot of, hey, remember Elijah, that for thousands of years there was none greater. Generation after generation there has been none greater than this man, that this man stood above. Well, until now, because Jesus has power like no other. He has power like none before, and it's, it's not even close. So we're going to talk more about his power over death and his power to comfort and his power to cleanse, but we just need to see that Jesus has power like, like, like none others, like none before, that every other power that we had seen prior, every other sort of, every other power is meant to foreshadow or to whisper that there is one true power, and it is now here in the person of Jesus Christ. So we need to see that Jesus has power like none before. There has been no one since that has power like Jesus Christ. There is no other power. There is no greater power than Jesus Christ. And there's the historical reality of the fact that Jesus is supreme in power. But there should also be a very personal fact to us that, okay, then do I place any power in anything other than Jesus Christ? See, do I place any ability and do I place any power in my own good works? Do I, do I put power in sort of some area in my own life, some ability in my own life, the way maybe I compare well or favorably in my own mind to others? See, ultimate power rests not in our works, rests not in our money, not in our status, not in our religion or in anything. It rests only in Jesus Christ. And we should also ask, do I draw my power from Jesus Christ? 
Or do I draw my power from some other source? Do I depend more on me as my source of strength? Or do I depend on Jesus Christ as my source of strength? Do I depend on others as my source of strength? Maybe my, my spouse. Do I rely primarily on my spouse as my source of strength? Or my status or something I'm able to do? Or do, do I draw my strength from Jesus Christ? Do I position my life? Do I sort of set my life up so that I can daily receive power from the resurrected Christ? Is that my source of strength? Or do I rely on anything else? Because we need to see that Jesus has power like no other. Secondly, we see this. Jesus has power over death. Power over death. So this young man dies, this boy dies, and obviously all loss is painful. But certainly the loss of a child here not just a child the only son to a woman whose husband had already died is has a particular sting to it and we know that all death is due to the fall that because adam and eve disobeyed in the garden since then all of humanity has been under a curse and that since then that death has been the great end and has been the great enemy for all people but a, but a death like this just stings in a particular way it screams out very loudly of the effects of the fall and just the, the, the curse that the fall brought. There's a, just a deep sting to a death like this. And in the midst of that deep sting, in the midst of just yet another reminder of what the curse has brought, here Jesus shows up where this death is most public, right? This is his body is being carried. This is a public mourning taking place. And so here's the scene. This young man is dead. That he's being publicly mourned. The effects of the curse are on full display. They're felt as deeply as they can be felt in, in a situation. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and says, young man, I say to you, arise. Now, I'll be honest. If, I, if I'm standing there that day, I think I have one of two reactions and neither one of them, neither one of them are appropriate or good. I think one, one, one of my reactions is, Jesus, are you, are you trying to be funny here? Like, what, what's your, what are you saying? He, he can't hear you. What are, you, what are you trying to do? Or, or I think, honestly, Jesus isn't trying to be funny. I think he's trying to be, my first reaction to Jesus, are you, are you being cruel here? Because Jesus, we're in mourning. His mom's in tears. This whole crowd of people is looking to comfort her. It, 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 comfort her. It, it's cruel to tell him to rise because he can't do it. He, he, he's dead, right? He has, he has no life. He has no power. He has no ability to, 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 to sit up. I mean, I, I had a goldfish as a kid, right? And one day it died, and I, I tried feeding it, and it didn't work. I told the goldfish to swim. It didn't work, right? Why? Because the fish was dead, right? It, the fish had no power, and I had no power, right? It, that, that seems to be that Jesus is doing this is very cruel here because the dead man has no ability, he has no power on himself to, to rise up from the dead because the curse is in effect, and death is the end. Unless the one who is commanding these words is the curse breaker himself. And the curse breaker is the author of life and the God of life. And if he appears, or to the dead, something different happens when he speaks. Because his words have power to raise the dead and to give life. And not only does he make ri rising from the dead possible, his words not only make it possible to rise from the dead, 
His words compel the dead to raise. He calls. This young man doesn't make a decision. His heart just starts beating. There's breath, just enters his lungs. He has power over death because he is the author of life. He has power over death because he broke the curse of death. You see, if you, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not because you made a move towards him. It's not because you first responded to him in some way. It's because he commanded your dead heart to come alive and compelled it just came to life. See, he has this power not only as the author of life, but as the one who would break the curse by giving up his life on the cross, by taking upon all the sin of man upon himself. He took all that the curse had wrought he, and he brought it upon himself so rather than death being the end he could give life and as you know he did not simply stay dead but he rose victorious and so this man's new life was a foreshadow of the coming resurrection because of the author of life whose re resurrection would ultimately allow this young man's which ultimately allows our resurrection as well We have a hope that, listen, as we think about the resurrection hope we have, we have a hope so much greater than just sort of ex extended years here on earth, but eternal days with him in glory because of the resurrection, because Jesus Christ is powerful over death. And he has so much power over death that not only is he able to make and compel the dead to come alive, not only to make the dead come alive, not only to compel the dead to come alive, he makes for all those who trust in him earthly death goes from our great enemy the, the thing that keeps us in bondage to the great hope we have because it finally frees us to be in his presence forever so Jesus has power like no other thirdly we see this that Jesus has power to cleanse power to cleanse so in verse 14 Jesus approaches the scene and before he tells this man to arise, he touches the beer, and the bearers stood still. So what, what's happening? So the beer is a, is a plank that one would carry a dead body on, it would, or it would oftentimes carry the coffin, but it was sort of this, this way of carrying the dead body. Now in the law, if you touched a dead body or the coffin with a dead body on it, you would be ceremonially unclean. So Numbers 19 talks about not touching coffins and, the, and these sorts of things, and, and some would not even touch the beer, the thing that you would carry the body on because it would make them unclean. Now there were ways and, and sort of observances of, of who could touch it and, and, how, and how it could be carried because obviously the bodies need to be transported in some way. But just to know that th there was parameters on it and there was sort of what, who could and when they could and certain people in certain ways and all this kind of thing because it was a serious thing because there was an inherent danger of becoming unclean by touching something unclean. But in verse 14, Jesus approaches the scene and he simply touches it on purpose. This was an intentional choice of Jesus. We're not talking sort of, oh, he accidentally and incidentally sort of grazed it, you know, walking by it. He came up, he reached out for it, he intentionally put his hand upon it. It says that then they were silent. And then the scene is that sort of they stopped in sort of stunned silence as he's touching the beer. I don't know what was totally going through their mind, but I, I think there was probably some who were, who were thinking, wait, wait a minute, this man who had healed others, well, hasn't he just sullied himself? This, there's, I think there's this stunned silence, not only at the boldness of Jesus to touch it, but, to, but also the, this question 
that sort of hovered over the whole scene. But wait a minute, now isn't he unclean by what he just did? In many ways, I think there's even, pull back the camera a little bit more, I think there's this much bigger scene taking place. Here is the God of life coming against death, who, in which to, to this point in human history has pretty much had an undefeated record. And you can almost see the crowd holding its breath as the bringer of life is now versus death because death can be avoided for a while, but death always claims the victory. And so if Jesus spoke to death and death doesn't budge, death wins. If Jesus touches what is unclean and he became unclean, death wins because we will never be clean if he himself is not clean. So there's this scene where just sort of silence falls over sort of the whole situation as Jesus touches and makes this command. And in the silence, Jesus commands the dead to rise. He, 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 he commands the dead to rise, and he had, he, had touched, he had sort of touched, and he came down and literally grabbed the uncleanness of man, telling the dead to rise. And there's sort of this, this silence and this sort of this tension that's filling the moment as here Jesus is, the God of life, sort of confronting death. Then we see how is the silence broken as there's the silence falling over. The silence is broken, not by tears, not by mourning, not by wailing, but by this former dead man, now alive, arising and speaking because Jesus has power over death and he has the power to cleanse. See, he was not made unclean by touching what was unclean, but rather his touch brought life and cleansing. See, Jesus steps into the lives of sinners and of sufferers and of those cursed by the fall. And he comes to us in his holy power and he is not stained by our impurities, but we are purified by his perfection. Jesus cleanses what he touches. One important thing just to see in our own life is when he puts his hand on something, some issue in your life, some stain, some sin, some impurity, that what Jesus does when he gets a hold of something in our life is he always brings cleansing power to it. Now, in my experience, this cleansing power is not in an instant that we might see illustrated here but it's just as definitive, his cleansing power. So as we think of our own life, if there's this, this, this thing that has sort of, in your own mind, is sort of what you think has plagued you, that, that this sin that you just, man, you just keep stumbling in, this, 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 this thing going on in your marriage that you just hit, man, this just keeps holding our marriage back, this thing with, with as a parent, that man, I just, man, I just, that this weakness just keeps defining who I am as a parent. This, 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 this thing just keeps hurting who I am as a witness. And this is not just affecting me now. This is just definitively who I am. This is the end of the story. This is just the way it's always going to be. I just want to remind you that Jesus Christ always purifies and cleanses what he touches. And he is not made unclean by us, but we are cleansed by him. Because his touch changes everything. Because he has power like no other. Fourth, we see this in this passage, that Jesus has power to comfort. 
power to comfort. Again, here's the situation. Here's the pain that Jesus is stepping into. This woman lost her only son. She's already lost her husband. Beyond just the obvious devastation of that, in this age, there, right, there's, no, there's, no, there's no life insurance, there's no social security. Th this woman is about to enter this great pain in the most desperate of economic situations as all of her earthly provision is gone. And so the situation Jesus is stepping into is that her present is deeply painful and her future is looking worse. But verse 13 says that Jesus saw her and had compassion on her. Now compassion is this outward term of outward action but it's caused by this inward disposition of heart basically his heart broke for her breaking heart her tears became deeply personal to him deeply painful to him and then he just tells her in his compassion do not weep again a couple ways one can hear that one could hear jesus is saying Oh man, he, he's minimizing our pain. He's minimizing our hurt. Hey, don't weep. It's not that bad. Things will just get better. Hey, keep your head up. Keep your chin up. Stop mourning so much. Obviously, either those responses would be cold and callous. Or one can hear it the way he actually said it. Do not weep. Because this is not the end of your story. Because I... I'm about to act. I see your situation. I see the reality of your situation. But I'm about to give you a whole new reality. See, I'm not, I'm not denying your reality, but I'm transforming your reality. And he rose the dead. He obviously brought great joy and comfort, but I also love, it says, that those who were there also, he brought joy and comfort, and he also brought fear and awe and worship. I think in this, this, this compassion in this story and his comfort in this story in this situation was to point us to a bigger reality beyond just sort of his compassion in one situation at one point in, in, in history is that Jesus, when he's confronted with broken humanity, when Jesus is confronted with, with humanity full of sorrow, Jesus doesn't just sympathize. Jesus just doesn't wish us the best. He steps into our reality and he is the God of all compassion who enters into the reality of our broken lives and our broken world. He is the only one who has infinite compassion. Jesus Christ is the man of sorrows that only Jesus is big enough to actually not just hear of, not just sympathize with, but to actually bear all the sorrows of, of man. He is the only one who he, he says that he is acquainted with grief. He is the only one who has enough compassion, who is infinite in his ability to give compassion, that he can actually comfort those who are grieving. He steps in to transform what the curse has brought. He steps in to transform our sorrows. His heart is big enough. His hands are powerful enough. His plans are wise enough to bring healing to our sorrow. Now here, he physically changes the circumstance. Now he's not always going to do that. Not in this exact way. But I promise you, as he steps into your life, 
as he steps into our great need. His heart is full of compassion towards us and he has the power and he alone has the power to change what sin has broken. He has the power to bring complete reversal of the curse. He brings good from what the enemy intends for evil. He brings purpose to our pain. He brings joy from our sorrow. He brings compassion to our need. He brings power to a situation. He brings wisdom to this, the confusion of why this, why now. He brings wisdom. We won't always see it in real time like this woman was able to. We won't always see it sort of in the timeline that I would love to see it. Don't let that fool you. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, he steps in and he stops for our sorrow because his compassion is infinite. He can bear it. His strength, his power is great enough to overturn it. His wisdom is enough to, to reverse it. His cross is enough to pay for it. His resurrection is enough to reverse it. His return is sure enough to hope for it. And his presence is enough to just continue to wait for it. Jesus isn't just a comfort by being a historical figure we can learn from and sort of see from his example who's sort of theoretically would be for us. He is the God of all compassion and he is the God of all power who has ensured for us all reasons for our sorrow. He has reversed. And he is counting our tears. And he will dry our eyes. And his presence really will be enough. So you can bring him your sorrow. And you can know not only that he cares, but his compassion really is big enough that he has power like no other. He has power to bear all of our sorrow and to carry it with us and to carry it for us. That he has power like no other before or since, that he has power over death, he has power to cleanse, and he has power to comfort. So let's be those who approach our God of all power with eager and expectant faith. Let's pray. Father, would you help your people to be those who not just see the power of Jesus on display here, but would go to Jesus and expectantly looking to you to receive your power. Lord, we need your power at work in our lives as we fight sin. We need your power in our lives as we fight insecurity and doubts and fears. And Lord, we need your power to comfort. Lord, we, we don't need kind words. Lord, we need the God of all comfort to bear our sorrows, to be infinite in his compassion, that he will never grow tired, that he will never grow weary, that his heart will never turn against those who are breaking. But he will always be the God of all compassion, ready to bear our every need and our every sorrow. So God, would you help your people to freshly look to Jesus Christ again today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.